It's that time of week again, and we are back with another episode of Med Reg News, and it's fantastic to have your company. This is our final cardiology-themed episode, for the time being at least, and we're finishing up with a fascinating discussion topic and an outstanding special guest. Today we're going to be looking at cardiac issues in pregnancy, something that might not necessarily be the first thing to spring into your mind when considering cardiology revision topics, but it's an area that we really do need to have a good understanding of. And to help us along the way, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Lucy McKillop, who is a consultant obstetric physician in the Oxford University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. She trained in Oxford, London and Sydney before taking up her consultant post in 2008. She is also a widely published author of academic material with over 50 peer-reviewed articles to her name, alongside lots of other book chapters and educational resources. And she is the perfect person to help us all get a better understanding of the most concerning cardiac issues that women might experience in pregnancy and how we should manage these when we come across them in our practice. So let's not waste any more time and let's find out what Dr. Lucy McKillop had to say when I spoke to her just a few weeks ago. So the first question I would like to ask is relating to cardiac disease and maternal mortality. So I believe that cardiac disease is the leading cause of maternal mortality in the UK. What I'd like to ask you is, what are the major causes of cardiac death in pregnancy? Thank you. So um, you're absolutely right that, unfortunately, cardiac disease is the leading cause of maternal death in the UK and has been for many, many years now. And in some respects, it makes sense because of the degree of change and adaptation of the cardiovascular system required in order to uh, support a uh, rapidly growing fetus. And, you know, the the increase in blood volume by over 50%, the increase in cardiac output required. And you can imagine that people who maybe are asymptomatic from their cardiac disease outside pregnancy rapidly can become symptomatic and indeed, unfortunately, in some cases die. The leading cause in the last confidential inquiry for maternal deaths uh, that looked specifically at cardiac disease in pregnancy, which was from the publication in 2019 for deaths between 2015 and 2017. And the leading cause then was cardiomyopathy, closely followed by ischemic heart disease. If we then go through some of the the main causes, and we could start with cardiomyopathy, uh, with that having been the one you've mentioned, what about pregnant patients with cardiomyopathy, how should they be monitored? Once you know somebody has a cardiomyopathy and they become pregnant, what should you be looking for? So there are sort of two distinct groups, I think, of of women. There are those women who have known cardiomyopathy that go into pregnancy with with a diagnosis. And then, of course, there are women who will end up with signs and symptoms of heart failure and a new diagnosis of a poor ejection fraction for all sorts of reasons during pregnancy. For, for those women who are known to have a cardiomyopathy prior to pregnancy, the, the, one of the most important things, of course, is preconception counselling and also an up-to-date evaluation of their cardiac function, which might be include dynamic studies and uh, MRIs, as well as just an um, echocardiogram. And the other important thing, of course, is optimization of, of medical management. So, for example, these women will often be on ACE inhibitors and we would not usually use that um, during pregnancy. Uh, therefore, ensuring that they understood that to stop that when they conceive is an important part of preconception counseling. 
In terms of how often we monitor them during pregnancy, it really does depend on how poor or otherwise their cardiac function is, and also what the etiology of their cardiac disease is. But generally speaking, we would see them at least every trimester, sometimes every month. And obviously, as they get nearer to term, or if there's any evidence that the ejection fraction is beginning to to go in in the wrong direction, we would see them much more frequently than that. And then the timing of birth is really dictated by their cardiac function. There are specific things that we need to do around the timing of birth, for example, fluid management, blood pressure control, all of those sort of things. And cesarean section, for example, is not something that we would automatically say these women would need, but certainly somebody with you know, significantly deteriorating ejection fraction, certainly when it gets below 30%, it's not always uh, appropriate to go ahead with a vaginal birth. And we would then probably suggest cesarean section. Can you explain what peripartum cardiomyopathy is and what are the clinical features of that? Yes, I mean, the definition of peripartum cardiomyopathy is pretty broad. The the definition is heart failure that develops within the last month of pregnancy or within five months post-delivery. And the ejection fraction needs to be at 45% or less. And importantly, no other cause for that decline in function can be found. And I think that's where sometimes it's difficult to know because you'll have a woman who develops signs of heart failure and uh, we don't know whether she's got an underlying dilated cardiomyopathy that just hadn't been appreciated before or she's got a new I know, viral myocarditis or something or whether this is true peripartum cardiomyopathy which is thought to be related to cleavage of fragments of prolactin that are cardiotoxic so they are the pathophysiology is very specific for pregnancy but unfortunately the clinical definition is very broad which means that a lot of women are for example referred to my clinic with a diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy but actually when we take a history we realize they had very bad preeclampsia and they were fluid overloaded or whatever the other reason is And it is important because if someone has had true peripartal cardiomyopathy and their ejection fraction does not recover and they get pregnant again, their chances of uh, declining their cardiac function and indeed, indeed even death is actually really quite high. Whereas obviously if they've got an underlying reasonably stable dilated cardiomyopathy, the chances of very poor outcome are much, much lower. So it really does impact making making that proper diagnosis or that accurate diagnosis is really important in order to properly counsel a woman for any subsequent pregnancy. Would there be any cases where when you're doing the preconception counselling that you would discourage someone from having children because of the ejection fraction, for example? Sure. So, so I think there are two answers to this. There is the sort of physiological sort of medical answer to this. And then there's a more of a sort of philosophical answer to this. And personally, I'm not in this job to tell people what they can and can't do. So, and I think it is a, a very personal choice. And so a lot of my job really is to explain the risks of having a baby, not whether they should or should not. And they can then make that informed choice and we will support them whatever their decision is. That said, there are some conditions in pregnancy which do have, they carry a very high mortality rate. So for example, idiopathic pulmonary hypertension, the survival rates are getting much, much better than they used to be. We used to quote up really up to 50% chance of mortality, but now it's much lower than that. But it still may be one in five chance of death, um, often in the first few days postpartum in somebody who's got uh, severe idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. And, you know, therefore, you know, my advice, if asked, would be that probably pregnancy wouldn't be 
a good choice, but it's not my job to say you must not have a baby. And I guess, yeah, women with cyanotic heart disease can be more of a concern. And um, what are patients like these at increased risk of during pregnancy, people with cyanotic heart disease? So often a lot of these women will have had palliative surgery in early life and actually their surgery has corrected many of the problems but there you know there are still women who have cyanotic heart disease that get into adolescence and adulthood and um, who choose to have um, a pregnancy and for example those with a fontan uh, circulation for example and and the first thing is that these women are not their fertility is not really very affected so they can still get pregnant and therefore you know ensuring that they have um, proper contraception advice at, at their you know annual reviews or their six monthly reviews in, in their cardiology uh, clinic is very important but if they do get pregnant they've got a very high chance of miscarriage and so that's the first thing to say and then the second thing to say is if they don't miscarry their risk really is related to sort of aberrant placental function which will uh, lead to either a small baby and or preeclampsia and and finally you know women with cyanotic heart disease are polycythemic and they've got a higher chance of venous thromboembolic disease and indeed arterial embolic disease but also of bleeding so they're more likely to bleed and them and they're more likely to clot and therefore judging those risks particularly in the peripartum period is quite tough to ensure that uh, we minimize uh, both of those outcomes and with their increased tendency to either clot or bleed, should we offer any routine medical treatment or prophylaxis for them to reduce the risk of them clotting or bleeding? Yes. So, so outside pregnancy, for example, somebody with a fontan circulation, often in adulthood, would be on long-term anticoagulation. And so if they're on a long-term anticoagulation already, uh, I would continue that during pregnancy. For those women who have been deemed to have a, a lower risk for whatever reason, I would still have them on thromboprophylaxis during pregnancy, yes. Hmm. Then thinking about acyanotic congenital heart disease, what are the main congenital cardiac issues in pregnant women that we should be aware of? So there's sort of important issues and then there's common things and they're slightly different. So the, the common things that we see are the common things we see in, in the sort of uh, general population. So bicuspid aortic valves or mitral valve prolapse. But, you know, a bicuspid aortic valve without any significant valvular abnormalities, you know, stenosis or, or regurgitation, and without any sort of important aortopathy is, is a pretty low risk lesion. That said, the babies of those women are at much more at a higher chance of having congenital heart disease themselves, and that, that might be uh, even to the region of one in five. So it's important to also make sure the baby has a fetal echo when, when the woman is pregnant. Mitral valve prolapse tends to not be a problem, but of course, in a smaller number of women, that can lead to significant mitral regurgitation. But generally speaking, you know, isolated pulmonary stenosis, for example, is another common thing that we see, doesn't really lead to, to much morbidity during pregnancy. We can normally get away with just increased surveillance, uh, an echo or two during a pregnancy to ensure things aren't getting worse. And would these women normally remain asymptomatic through pregnancy and labour? Yes, they would normally do so. I mean, you know, there are occasions, usually, you know, the large VSDs or the large ASDs have been closed by this stage, but not always. And you know, every couple of years, we have someone who we diagnose with 
uh, a significant septal defect during pregnancy for the first time. And in fact, the other year we had somebody who had a tetralogy of flat fallow at 30 who'd ne never been diagnosed before. So <laughs> it does happen. And with that in mind, you know, often these women possibly were born outside the UK. And likewise, with women who've had rheumatic heart disease, often these women born outside the UK and come to the UK and have not ever had a formal cardiac assessment and indeed possibly haven't even seen medical professionals before they fall pregnant. That brings me on to the next thing I'd actually like to speak to you about, rheumatic heart disease. Do we ever see women with rheumatic heart disease in the UK today? And if so, is that because of sort of freer travel, more people moving into the country? Yes, exactly that. So rheumatic heart disease used to be the leading cause of maternal death in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s. And then levels came right down. And, and we're seeing a, a, a resurgence as, you know, global travel pre-pandemic uh, was more common. Uh, and so that's exactly right. So there'll be women who were maybe born outside the UK that maybe didn't ever realise they had rheumatic fever, don't realise they have rheumatic heart disease, who then fall pregnant. And outside pregnancy, they're asymptomatic, but inside pregnancy, they've become quite symptomatic. And it's because mitral stenosis is really poorly tolerated in pregnancy. And often these women have mitral stenosis. And that's the, the cardinal classic presentation of heart failure at around 28 weeks pregnant and actually at, you know, plus or minus atrial fibrillation. And, and that's, that's a new diagnosis of mitral stenosis. So what management would you offer for a pregnant woman who came to you with those classic symptoms? So... I mean, usual medical management for that. So um, if they're in atrial fibrillation, we would slow them down or cardiovert them, depending on when we think that they've gone into AF. Uh, we would anticoagulate them. We'd offload them with frusamide, plus or minus um, nitrates, and then continue that sort of medical management to optimise their cardiac function until such time as, as they can be delivered. And then there was obviously discussing with our cardiothoracic surgeons as to whether there's an option for a surgical therapy for their, their mitral stenosis. Would that happen reasonably often where a, a woman who's quite pregnant could have mitral valve surgery? So very rarely. I mean, obviously we wouldn't want to do any sort of surgery. Certainly a valve replacement is not something that you'd want to do in pregnancy because obviously you're going to have to go and bypass that the chances of the baby surviving that is is not high. But we have had women, I had a woman who had um, aortic stenosis that became symptomatic at 10 weeks pregnant and she had a, a new valve at 12 weeks and went on to have an, a normal pregnancy actually. But most women, we will get away with medical management until they've had the baby but their baby may be small they may get pre they may need early delivery because of it and um, one of the major causes of maternal mortality that you mentioned earlier was ischemic heart disease mm. so if a medical registrar or a cardiology trainee listening to this podcast is called out of hours to a pregnant woman with central chest pain and a raised troponin and they're suspecting an mi should they manage her as a pregnant woman any differently from a non-pregnant patient with the same presentation? So I would so the answer to that is really no. But I guess we've got to just think of the reasons of for their ischemic heart disease. So 
historically, ischemic heart disease has been related to coronary artery dissection, and, and uh, an artery dissection is more common in pregnancy, full stop, and therefore coronary artery dissection leading to a myocardial infarction is used to be the most common. What we're seeing now is actually it is women presenting with conventional risk factors for well atheroma and, and, and coronary artery disease because they're older, maybe they're overweight, diabetes, high cholesterol, hypertension, and they have just you know coronary artery disease. But what, what I think is still in people's perception is, oh, well, they can't possibly have coronary artery disease because they're a 38-year-old woman and they're pregnant and therefore we're going to sort of think about it as you know, something, must be something else. So it, it, it's usually coronary artery dissection or normal coronary artery disease. Either way, that needs to they need to go to the lab and have a PCI or at least an angiogram followed by PCI. And in terms of medical management, aspirin, yes, clopidogrel, yes, trigragulor, not, and uh, we don't we don't tend to use that in pregnancy. There's less evidence for safety in pregnancy. We don't use DOAX, but fondoporinax would be all right. And what other things? Low molecular heparin is often used, and obviously unfractionated heparin would be fine beta blockers are fine so most you know in terms of the acute management to the cath lab would be the best thing to identify whether this is coronary artery disease needing a stent or whether it is coronary artery dissection possibly needing a stent too and sort of significant and formal anticoagulation um, but avoiding the 2a3b and avoiding some of the doacs and avoiding warfarin as well. So we would use low molecular heparin or unfractionated heparin and dual antiplatelet therapy. Just on that point, in terms of medication that we can and can't give in pregnancy, that's one thing that often I have wondered when dealing with pregnant patients in the past is what is safe to give for both the woman and the unborn child. So mm-hmm. a- apart from warfarin and OAX and tacagrelor that you mentioned, are there any other cardiac medications that we should avoid with pregnant patients? Well, as I've mentioned already, ACE inhibitors and ARBs tend to not be used in pregnancy. There's some evidence for teratogenicity. It's not absolute. And certainly if someone was to get pregnant on an ACE inhibitor, I'd just stop it. But I wouldn't you know, worry too much about it. And there are a small number of patients who are at so high risk that I feel that they need to continue their ACE inhibitor. But that's very rare. There is pretty good evidence for fetal toxicity for ACE inhibitors. So they tend to affect the fetal kidney. I think The rule of thumb usually, particularly in the acute setting, particularly in someone who you suspect, for example, of having an MI, is to do exactly what you would do outside pregnancy. And the morbidity tends to come from a delay in that or a worry about doing these things. And therefore, ultimately, they receive less aggressive management than they they should have. The last thing I want to ask on this, and it is very much a worst case scenario, but it's good for us to be ready in case this happens. If a pregnant woman was to become so unwell that she went into cardiac arrest, are there any special considerations that we should make when approaching CPR and life support with pregnant patients? Yes and no. So in terms of, you know, you would do your your usual protocol in terms of chest compressions and, and all the rest of it. Sometimes it is easier, particularly in, in heavily pregnant women, to, to have a front to back paddle orientation rather than the paddles both on the on the anterior and side of the chest. You get better coverage. And so that that would be one point. And the other point is that as part of the resuscitation of a uh, woman who has lost output, uh, it's always important to think about perimortem caesarean section. And it's really important to understand that that is 
to aid resuscitation of the mother. That's not to salvage the baby. And so, and that is advocated that that is done within five minutes of the woman losing output. Brilliant. Thank you. That is is such a helpful rundown of all those issues that we may well have to deal with in the ward. So it's very good to be aware of them. And the last few things I want to ask you are about you and uh, not about medicine. So, well, I suppose the first one's a little bit related to medicine. What was it that drew you to your particular line of work in obstetrics? So I think my first interaction, I guess, of obstetric medicine was actually as a medical student. And uh, I was on the ward in Oxford, where I work now. And uh, I saw with, as it turned out, my predecessor, Professor Chris Redman, a woman who was pregnant with twins and she had lupus. And she had very poor, she had really bad preeclampsia and they, she was an inpatient. We were managing her, her preeclampsia and, and her twins. And I was struck by the, the physiological challenge of pregnancy and how that interacted with medical conditions. And I think that that was the, really the spark that it was, you know, I found it really interesting to think about the physiology of this. And, and it is that that I use every day in my clinical practice when I unpick a problem and say, right, well, what is actually happening? What is the physiology here? What should we be worried about? What should, what should I tell a woman, you know, that might happen so that she, she's aware and, and, and fully informed. What do you like doing to escape the stresses of life in the hospital what do you like to do to get away from work so I like running with my dogs (laughs) so I run three times a week not very far not very fast with my dogs but I do that I like good food good wine and family I guess like most people brilliant (laughs) and very last thing I want to ask you do you have any life advice or career advice that you would like to share with the trainees listening to this podcast that you wish you had been told when you were in training? So I, I think my training has been not by the book and it's been quite a fight to continue to believe that I can continue to do what I want to do despite not going through a conventional training programme. And I think that that's become more difficult, not less, since I qualified. But I do think that at the end of the day, you have to be true to yourself. And you know, we work in the NHS for a very long time. So we have to really end up doing something that we really love. And if that means that it takes a little bit more time, or you have to go overseas to get the um, training that you need, or that you have to fight to do that extra thing, or, you know, OOP, or take a time out, whatever, in order to, to achieve that, I think it's so worth it. There's no rush to become a consultant. But what there is an important thing to do is to be true to yourself and make sure that you're doing the job that you love at the end of the day completely agree you're preaching to the converted here (laughs) thank you so much for your time really really appreciate it brilliant insight from a real specialist in her field thanks once again to dr mckillop for her time and her kindness in sharing with us for this episode it's been really great to hear from a number of you who have been tuning into these episodes week by week and if you have friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy them feel free to share the podcast as widely as you can. The more people who are able to listen along, the better. And if you would like to say hello, please drop us a message. You can find us on Twitter at MedRegNews, or if you prefer old-fashioned email, you can write to us at medregnews at gmail.com. We hope you're keeping well wherever you are, and look forward to speaking with you again next time on MedRegNews. News.